Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Surgical strike. Israeli soldiers say they've found some weapons. After storming Al-Shifa Hospital, we reach a doctor who used to work there who describes what he saw in that building and what he's experiencing now at an overflowing, undersupplied hospital in central Gaza. Just what the doctor back-ordered. An Ontario man with diabetes is worried after being told he may have to wait months for his medication due to a worldwide shortage of Ozempic that is at least partly fueled by people using it for cosmetic weight loss. That's his cue. Her trans son was thrilled to be cast in his high school musical, only to be cut when officials said students could only play roles that match their sex assigned at birth. Now the Texas teenager is heading back to center stage. Lava-hate relationship. The head of an Icelandic volcanological center talks about what may be in store for the town near the site of a volcano that looks like it is about to give an unwanted hot take. No egrets. The vomiting mullet-rocking bird called the Puteketeke wins the New Zealand Bird of the Century contest. A scandalous injustice shamefully perpetrated by John Oliver. Tell him. (laughs) And an alarming frequency that shows up with alarming frequency. It has afflicted cities around the world over the years. And now Oman, Northern Ireland is struggling with the deep and deeply annoying drone of the hum. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that's all thrums. For days, staff and patients at Gaza's largest hospital have been watching as Israeli troops came closer and closer. And today, the Israeli military finally stormed the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza City. Soldiers searched the complex and interrogated people inside, and Israel has released images of guns, ammunition, and other military supplies they say were found in one of the hospital buildings. It says the hospital is home to a Hamas military command center. Staff at the hospital deny those claims. Ebrahim Matar is an ICU doctor at the Al-Aqsa Hospital in the central Gaza Strip. That's where we reached him. Dr. Matar, you did your residency at Al-Shifa. You know people there. So I'm wondering what what you thought, how you dealt with the the reality that Israeli troops entered that hospital today. Yes, it was a very sad moment for me. Uh, a very sorrowful moment, heartbreaking, that I see uh, the main hospital in the whole Gaza Strip as uh, being uh, invaded by soldiers and tanks. Uh, actually, every every healthcare worker know what is the meaning of a hospital. It is a place of refuge and shelter, and giving care to people. There's been a communication shutdown or a blackout. We've been trying to reach doctors at that hospital all day and haven't been able to connect with people. Have you been able to speak with any of your colleagues there? I tried 
to call and communicate many friends and colleagues there as medical doctors and nurses there, uh, but connection was too weak in the whole Gaza Strip. Connection was too weak, and it, the hospital was evacuated. Israel, as you know, the IDF put out pictures today. It says that that it seized guns and ammunition that it found inside the hospital, and it says it has intelligence that proves that the hospital is a base for Hamas. You know this hospital, as you've said. How do you respond to those allegations? The whole uh, number of doctors who uh, entered and uh, worked inside the uh, Shifa hospital uh, have never seen any act of military uh, work inside the hospital. Uh, I have never seen anything like this. All doctors who worked in Shifa nurses, healthcare workers. We have never heard of any military work inside any hospital. You know, as you know, the allegation is that they're operating underground, that they're using people Uh, as human shields. I cannot say that this is true or false, but me and all my colleagues, all doctors, all nurses have never seen anything like this. I hear the activity around you. You are at your hospital, Al-Aqsa. It's clearly very busy. Can you tell me what's happening around you? Actually, every day we receive casualties of bombings in the middle area of Gaza Strip, as it is the only hospital in the middle area. So the pressure is very high on the hospital as the number of injuries, the number of casualties, and also the number of regular uh, patients is getting high because evacuees are too much in the middle area south to Gaza Valley. You know, the patients you're seeing, what kinds of cases are you seeing, doctor? The type of injuries mainly are explosive injuries. Um, Inhalational injury, when a pump occurs, the large amount of smoke gets in the air. Uh, Those who are in the explosion or near to the explosion get the inhalation of this smoke. It enters their lungs and immediately kills them. Other injuries include uh, vascular injuries, orthopedic fractures, amputations, hemothorax, cardiac contusion. And one of the most common causes of injuries and fatal injuries is burns. Burns. Burns due to explosion. We have seen burns that are very extensive. Mostly in any explosion, the the percentage of burn is more than 70% of the body. So most of burn patients also die. Do you have enough supplies uh, and medication to treat these Uh, patients? Absolutely uh, no. So in many times we treat patients in the corridors, in the the streets of the hospital, in the yards of the hospital. I was going to ask. The, it sounds um, like you're. It sounds like you're outside, like, and that there are facilities being set up outside to deal with patients. Is that what's happening around you? Am I hearing correctly? Yes. Yes. I can. I can see uh, many patients who are lying on the beds between departments, between corridors, in the in the stairs, and outside departments. Why? Because departments are full. But sometimes it is difficult to choose which patient to get the bed because sometimes. The ICU is totally full, and whole departments in the hospital is full. Sometimes at one bombing, five patients may need ICU management. How can you manage 
five ICU patients in only two beds. Sometimes patients may die uh, because they have no space to be treated. Uh, we have shortage of um, uh, analgesia, the most simple analgesic, which is paracetamol. We have shortage also of antibiotics. Many patients may get uh, their wounds infected. Uh, we have seen worms getting out of the infected wound. Chem- Sorry, did chemical you say material. worms? Did you say worms, doctor? Yeah. Yes, yes, uh, due to severe wound infection and a dirty wound after uh, heavy bombing, after being under rubble, after uh, some sort of uh, severe contamination. Yes, we have seen this. Uh, we have uh, also been using uh, a vinegar, vinegar for uh, cleaning wound. But we have very, you can listen to a bombing right now. Are you in a safe place? Uh, uh, I think yes, relatively yes. You've been there, doctor. You were telling me since the very first day. Have you been able to go home? Are you there every day? How are you doing as a as a person? I live actually. I live in Gaza City, and my family is in Gaza City, which is now uh, very dangerous. So I got separated from my family. So now I have not seen my family for the whole war so i'm i'm separated from my family i feel very anxious about them that i need that them to be safe all of my time i feel uh, anxious about my family i want them to be safe and also i wish i meet them very soon doctor i hope you get word of them soon and that you get to see each other soon thank you for your time yes thank you Ibrahim Matar is an ICU doctor at the Al-Aqsa Hospital in the central Gaza Strip. That's where we reached him. Today alone, more than 800 small earthquakes shook Iceland, which is all the more disturbing because they are believed to be harbingers of a volcanic eruption. 4,000 people have fled the fishing village of Grindavik near Reykjavik. That's the entire population of that village. And for now, and for an unknown period to come, all they can do is watch and wait. Ricky Peterson is the head of the Nordic Volcanological Center in Reykjavik. That's where we reached her. Rike, we know certainly that things could change quickly, uh, but but as we're speaking right now, what do you know about how likely it is that there's going to be a volcanic eruption near Grindavik? Well, of course, the risk is still there. We do not put any numbers uh, on the likelihood, um, but as we are still seeing uh, GPS stations on the uh, surface uh, moving apart, indicating that there's still magma flow uh, coming into the dike from below, then the risk is certainly still there. And what are, you know, you mentioned it a little bit there, but what are the warning signs that that you're keeping your okay. eyes on? Yeah, so the, the three things that's really monitored closely is, of course, seismicity, the locations of earthquakes, the sizes, and if they are moving uh, to shallower um, um, locations. Mm-hmm. 
The second thing is the deformation of the surface. If we see widespread deformation, if it's uh, continuous or if it's declining, because you have large volumes of magma um, coming close to the surface, it will bulge up. And 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 when this site formed on Friday, it, it entered into this 15-kilometer-long um, kind of fissure. Mm-hmm. And that fissure was pushing the two sides apart. So that can be measured on the surface. Um, so the spreading we're seeing currently is really indicating that there is magma flowing in still. This event is not over. Um, but we also um, see that uh, the deformation is really concentrated on uh, a shorter patch of the dike. So it's more likely that we have an eruption occurring from a certain area of the dike now. Um, and then the third thing that's being monitored closely is the gas um, in the area. So if SO2 is measured in any um, in any amount uh, in in the atmosphere, then it's an indication that the magma is degassing and that will only happen if it's very close with mm. within a few hundreds of meters from the surface. So that's a third sign. In the best case scenario, how much advance notice will you have that you'll be able to you know, predict that there's going to be an eruption? Well, of course, we hope to have um, at least 12 hours um, uh, some indications of this going to happen. Um, but of course, we cannot be sure. Mm-hmm. Um, we have in the past experienced uh, eruptions um, which were really initiated almost uh, with no prior warnings. It really, it, it sounds crazy, but it's also sort of weather dependent. Mm-hmm. In the case that we have strong winds, which we often do in Iceland, then all the seismic stations are actually slightly vibrating due to to the strong winds, and that will um, that can in some cases um, mask out the first signal of tremor, which is what's occurring when the magma is really leaving the ground. Then it starts shaking all over. But we have had cases where that the very initial opening were masked out by the strong winds. Based on what you've seen so far, uh, is is there any chance that there is no eruption? The, the risk of an eruption is still there. Mm-hmm. We are, of course, all hoping that this will not happen, as it would be a catastrophe to the area. There's not only a, a town of 3,800 inhabitants, which are currently all evacuated from the area, but there's also a large power plant, and um, that one is at risk as well. So it's a geothermal power plant utilizing the the heat source uh, from the volcanic area. And then finally, the Blue Lagoon is quite close. Do you think this might also signal everything that you're seeing, uh, more volcanic activity elsewhere as well? Yeah. So, I mean... Iceland is a very uh, volcanic area, of course. We have the tectonic plates that move apart continuously here in Iceland. And um, Reykjanes, is, is, um, it has a pattern 
where we see the strain that is really built up through hundreds of years of, of plate spreading is released in pulses of activity, which um, will last a few hundred years. And uh, the dormancy in between is like up to 700 years. And what has happened is the, the past prior uh, eruptive period ended in 1240. Yeah. We know that very um, exact. And um, in 2021, we had the first eruption again then in Reykjanes. And that's then a new initiation of an active period. Mm -hmm. So with each eruption we have on Reykjanes now, it will relieve some of the strains that have been built up uh, in the area. And when finally all the stresses have been relieved, uh, through the eruptions, it will enter into a new dormant period. But as I said, that takes a few hundreds of years. Ricky, I appreciate your time. Thank you. You're very welcome. Ricky Peterson is the head of the Nordic Volcanological Center in Reykjavik. Puteketeke pandemonium prevails. That's what the New Zealand conservation organization Forest and Bird announced alliteratively on Wednesday when it revealed that that bird now wears the coveted bird of the century crown atop its burnt orange mullet. The Puteketeke, known less interestingly as the Australasian crested grebe, didn't just win the contest. It smashed it after a shockingly aggressive campaign by John Oliver, host of Last Week Tonight on HBO. As we told you recently on the show, he bought billboards, he dressed up as the bird on Jimmy Fallon, and he made this passionate case on his show earlier this month. I don't just want the Pootaki Taki to win. I want it to win in the biggest landslide in the history of this magnificent competition. I want it to do to other bird of the century candidates what the Pootaki Taki does to fish in New Zealand's lakes. That is, eat them alive and then throw them back up in a ball of feathers. Do it. Because after all, this is what democracy is all about. America interfering in foreign elections. Nicola Taki is Forest and Birds chief executive. We reached her in Christchurch, New Zealand. Nicola, did, did any other bird really stand a chance? Uh, no, not. They didn't even get close. So uh, <laughs> John Oliver's... Um, Interference. Yes. Um, But, you know, we we would never turn away from such positive interference to shine a light on our amazing native bird life here in New Zealand. So we embraced it. And also, uh, if you've kept an eye on Bird of the Year over the last 18 years or so, we love a bit of uh, cheeky banter and controversy. And this (laughs) couldn't have provided uh, better controversy in the best way. So the next... uh, two species that um you know that were on the podium if you like were the north island brown mm-hmm. kiwi uh which got just nearly thirteen thousand votes twelve thousand nine hundred and four and then the kia our alpine parrot 
12,060. But the poo tiki uh yeah. blew them out of the water, <laughs> excuse the pun, uh, at 290,000 votes. I, I'm just sad because I was team Coca-Cola. I love that bird. Oh, and I don't blame you. Yeah, uh, it's the a beautiful Kokako, bird. A beautiful bird. Um, one of our uh, sort of eminent Kokako scientists here in New Zealand once said that if if you pass away and you haven't heard the sound of a Kokako, then you you die poor, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is is a really apt way of describing just the the, the incredible beauty of that bird's um, song. And, you know, we love our birds here in New Zealand. The kōkako is featured on our $50 note. I didn't know that. And I'm glad that they're, all the birds are getting so much attention uh, and that you are for, for your work as well. But, I mean, apart from the interference, there were, there were allegations of, of voter fraud as well. Tell us about that. <laughs> yes, uh, and that did come from the uh, the continent uh, of <laughs> North America, I would say. But um, we've been very strict about our voting system, uh, partly because New Zealanders love this competition so much, and, and so we like to give it the integrity it deserves. And so we have a verification system, which meant that actually John Oliver caused our election results, our poll results, to be delayed by two days, and my team were working around the clock. Uh, to verify these votes. And we found uh, 40,000 votes uh, cast by a single person who, uh, in the US, I think, who saw uh, John Oliver in his fantastic bird costume on the um, on Jimmy Fallon's show, The yeah. Tonight Show, uh, where he dismissed, John Oliver dismissed some of the other birds and he dismissed the Eastern Rockhopper penguin as a hipster penguin. That obviously, <laughs> that obviously tickled someone who then tried to vote for it 40,000 times. Uh, and someone in Pennsylvania cast 3,403 votes, one every three seconds, and those votes also had to be uh, sort of chucked out. Did you have some other favorite campaigns for other birds during all of this? I mean, that's my favorite part of um, Bird of the Year. And obviously this year, because Forest and Bird is celebrating our 100th birthday, we decided to make it bird of the century um the the kiwi campaign got very serious and they had like a previous all blacks coach uh involved in vying for the kiwi uh, as well as some great international sledging that ended up getting back on the john oliver show because they described him as a b-grade celebrity um One of the other things that um, we were very deliberate about in this campaign is while New Zealand is known for our beautiful bird life and our wildlife and, you know, and our wild places, we we actually have quite, well, you know, we are in fact the extinction capital of the world and we have lost so many species of birds since people and pests arrived here. And the, and, and for, for a sort of a Canadian uh, audience, it, it might be difficult to understand, but here in New Zealand, if it has four legs and fur, then it didn't evolve here. And that's been hugely problematic for the survival of our native birds who aren't used to mammals. And so five of the species on our um, candidates uh, list were extinct birds that have gone extinct within the last hundred years mm. because it's sort of a poignant reminder. We don't want people to lose sight of the fact yeah. that eighty-two percent of New Zealand's birds are still threatened, and we and we don't want to take our foot off the accelerator accelerator in terms of protecting them. I'm still Team Coca Cola, as you know, but uh, didn't make <laughs> the top ten. Hey, there's always next year. You're right. We just have to get John Oliver on side, maybe. <laughs> Thank you, Nicola. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Nicola Taki is the chief executive of Forest and Bird in New Zealand. We reached her in Christchurch. 
And now the As It Happens recap of the latest in celebrity news. Guess which two box office sensations were seen canoodling at the hottest night spot in Beverly Hills? <laughs> That's right. It, wait a minute. Do you hear that? What is that humming sound? It's the hum, isn't it? Oh, my God. It's the hum. We're doomed. We're it, No. No, sorry, false alarm. My apologies. I, I'm a little on edge right now because of the latest news from Oman, Northern Ireland. Just the latest community to be subjected to the teeth-rattling nightmare of the hum, which has previously tormented Calgary. It's always got a very uh, identical characteristic of being a low hum. Sometimes there's additional characteristics in that it might throb or it might be constant, but it, that quality of sound never changes. And Leslieville, Ontario? I can say that it's lower than a, a drone sound. kind of sounds a little bit, well, it's kind of perceived a little bit like a diesel engine that's far away in the distance. It has preoccupied the citizens of Hueytown, Alabama. Well, it's, uh, it is a constant noise for one thing. Uh, it's just a, uh, it's, it's like a motor or a fan that is just constantly running, and it just creates a humming-type sound. And Ranchlands, Alberta. Is it it's pretty much what it sounds like. And those are just a few of the stories that we have told of communities that have been held hostage by the hum. It's always a low-frequency sound that keeps people awake. It always goes on for weeks or months at a time, disrupting sleep and conversation. Is it industrial equipment, military testing, aliens, alien military testing? We almost never find out. As I said, now it's driving the good people of Oma to distraction. The town council there has started an investigation, but so far it has proven fruitless. A spokesperson told the BBC, due to the wide area where the sound has been reported, it is difficult to pinpoint the exact sources. We'll keep you posted. But along with annoyance and insomnia, we should let the people of Oman know that some have reported another effect from 2014. Here's our former host, Carol Off, speaking to Al Magni, a former city councillor in Windsor, Ontario, home of another hum. I understand there is one man who actually thinks that the hum might have caused some dysfunction. We don't like to joke about these things all the time, but, you know, I've heard of a wide range of how it's affected people's lives, whether it's created stress or I can't sleep. And so there was one gentleman who, you know, wanted to share a little bit what they call TMI, and he maybe said his performance in the bedroom was affected a bit by the Windsor hum, which uh, it's one of those times where you're like, okay, you just take a step back and from the seriousness of this and be able to have a quick little laugh. Well, the- <laughs> <laughs> Apparently the dog. Uh, <laughs> Somebody agrees with you. <laughs> well, maybe, the, maybe he's being affected by this hum too. I think, I think the dog agrees. <laughs> Fair warning, Oma, to you and your dogs. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. 
Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. In recent years, Ozempic has become associated with weight loss. But amid global shortages, the diabetes drug is increasingly associated with wait lists. According to the Canadian Pharmacists Association, pharmacists across the country have been turning away patients amid what Health Canada describes as intermittent shortages of the drug. It was originally developed to treat diabetes, but Ozempic is increasingly being prescribed off-label for weight loss. That doesn't sit well with Glenn Patton. He has type 2 diabetes, and he is struggling to refill his prescription. We reached Mr. Patton in Cornwall, Ontario. Glenn, what exactly are you up against when you're trying to get your hands on your diabetes meds, the Ozempic? It's something that is actually shocking for a Canadian like me. I've never had that in my life. You go to the pharmacy and they say, well, there's none. There probably won't be any until March. And, you know, check around other pharmacies and see if you can get some. Mm -hmm. Uh, If not, uh, go see your doctor. And These are life-threatening illnesses. They affect one in three Canadians and millions of people. And and it's just shocking to go to a pharmacy in Canada in 2023 and hear that. Well, let's go back when when you did first start using Ozempic in particular. Mm-hmm. What difference did it make for you treating your diabetes compared to the meds you were on before? I got diabetes through abdominal surgery uh, five, six years ago. Oh. And um, the original meds are what they call the uh, the original series, the first older type meds. The danger they had in controlling your blood sugar is they would crash you. And uh, being a retired firefighter paramedic, uh, you, you know the symptoms. And I had twice the phone in my hand to call 911 for a glucose injection. Because you go down in, the, in between the 2.5, 2.8 range, and it's very hard to get your sugar back up at that point. You could actually pass out and be in a coma. So uh, my doctor prescribed me for the Ozempic. And the beauty of Ozempic is you never really go below four. And anywhere from four to seven is a perfect range for uh, blood sugar, and uh, you feel healthy, you feel energetic. Yeah, it and sounds I like it's on. kind of it was kind of life changing for you. Oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I mean, you it's described true. the shock of not being able to get your hands on it and the weight. But when did it start yeah. being a problem? Like when you started seeing the headlines about Ozempic um, being used for weight loss and things like that. When when did you start getting an inkling that it was going to be hard for you to get the medication you need? About six months ago, I'd have to say, I started seeing a lot of pictures of Hollywood celebrities and then hearing anecdotal evidence here in Canada that people were taking it being prescribed off-label, which is really the purpose of what I'm trying to spearhead here and others of us, you know, up through in the Canadian uh, Diabetes Association. Um, If that is the main reason, and apparently it is, it's creating a shortage. When when you were trying to find it, how many pharmacies Mm -hmm. turned you down? I went to uh, to seven uh, in our area, and then there was uh, one that t- told me to call this other pharmacy. Uh, they have two suppliers, I was told. And I called them, and the lady was quite angry on the phone, and she says, well, who keeps saying that? We don't. So clearly we're a lot of people were calling. Me. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. What did yeah. you do then? Well, I put a call out. Uh, <laughs> I declared a social family emergency on social <laughs> media, and I and I had family checking across uh, in different areas and into Quebec and into Eastern Ontario and that, and and there's just none of the stuff available. So I come back to the original premise of all of this: is like what's creating the shortage? It's not like the factory burned down. The shortage is because people are using it for something they shouldn't be using it for. And diabetics, as you know, 
we have to take care of our whole body, but our, our, our extremities, our limbs. You don't want to get amputations. And I was at a foot care clinic just this week, and the nurse was discussing it with me. She has many customers. They're all short of their medication. And she told me she had a lady in the chair yesterday who was using it for weight loss and took two shots, didn't lose what she wanted, and then threw it away. And oh, like, what did, when you heard that? <laughs> when you heard that it was thrown oh, that, away? That, just maddening. Just totally maddening. You reached and, out to your so local it, MP as well. What did they say? Yep. The MP said it, it's at the federal level. And up to the federal level, you go to the website, and the website just tells you what you already know. But my government should be able to find out what's going on and have an emergency plan, because this affects so many people, millions of people, frankly, in this country. Uh, they can do it. They did it in the pandemic. Why they're not doing it now, I have no idea. My MPP was very, uh, Nolan Quinn, was, his office was very assistant, and basically they got me to the College of Physicians and Surgeons. Nice fellow answered the phone. Basically what he said, thanks for calling. Doctors can prescribe what they want to who they want. I think, whoa, hold on. <laughs> Tell me you guys must have a regulation, either through Health Canada or the college, that when there's a shortage, we stop doing this for cosmetic reasons, and only the life-saving medication goes to the people that need it for life-saving. Uh, oh, oh, no, that's, that's a good idea, though. Really? So you're trying to tackle this on a number of fronts, it sounds like, but how much supply do you have left? I have enough for two injections, so I have enough for two weeks. And do you have any hope that you're going to be able to get your full prescription filled in two weeks? No. Two pens flew in about a, a week and a, a week and a half ago, and me and another fellow were at the top of the list. So we are no longer at the top of the list. We are at the bottom of his list now. So, so uh, I'll be frank with you. I, well, I'm going to get get back to my primary health healthcare provider. Uh, I have a very very good family doctor. But something that a family member said to me actually just last night, she said, yeah, but your doctor might prescribe that old med again. And, and what happens if you don't react to it properly? It's not, exactly. They're worried but, that if you go to your old meds that, that it's going to be a problem. Yeah, exactly. And if you don't adjust properly, then your numbers, as we all uh, diabetics are always on numbers, then your A- A1C numbers are out of whack. And then now what do you do? You know, between you and I, it's, it, I'm so honored to, to be on your show. But, but in all honesty, I shouldn't even be on your show. This should have been settled six months ago. The government should have implemented a plan. I want to hear that here's what we're doing. We're helping the manufacturer. We have passed a temporary law through Parliament, a special member's bill or whatever. There will be no off-label use of any life-saving medication for the next foreseeable future uh, in Canada. And if you do, you will be fined so much per day. And, and that'll stop it in its tracks. But, I mean, do you really have to have John Q. Public, the poor guy at the end of the line, to, to raise up the red flag. I mean, if we do, I, I think there's a problem systemically. Glenn, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I much appreciate it. Take care. Glenn Patton is struggling to refill his prescription of Ozempic for type 2 diabetes. We reached him in Cornwall, Ontario. Novo Nordisk, the company that manufactures Ozempic, told the CBC in a statement that it apologizes to patients and healthcare professionals affected by the shortages, But it says the drug is not approved for chronic weight management and that the company does not advertise Ozempic for weight loss.
usually when there's a headline about a trans student being banned from an activity, the activity is sports. And the story rarely ends with the student getting an apology. But this story is different. In Sherman, Texas, a short drive from Dallas, a high school senior was cast in a leading role in his school's production of Oklahoma. Max Hightower is trans, and as soon as he won the role, he lost it. The school district said that students could only play roles that match their sex assigned at birth. Then it said the original play wasn't age-appropriate. But after a huge outpouring of support from Max from his community, the school district has changed its mind. Amy Hightower is Max's mother. We reached her in Sherman, Texas. What do you think it's going to be like, Amy, to, to finally see Max perform his solo on opening night? Still a few months to go or a couple months to go, but what do you think it's going to be like? Uh, I think it's going to be the best performance of Max's life. I think uh, there's a lot of anticipation, of course, of building up to this. Um, a lot of hurdles that we've crossed. Um, and I am so excited to watch Max on stage. I'll be there every single performance. <laughs> How many performances are there? There'll be four total. Okay. Theater, you know, for anyone who gets a chance in in school, just even even one year, if you can do it, it's such a it's such a great uh, experience. But what does it mean to Max? Oh, it's everything to Max. Uh, theater and choir are are where Max feels the most safe and the most comfortable. Um, where there are other kids just like him um, that don't fit, you know, your everyday mold, right? I and mean, we all have quirks about us, but. Um, that is that is Max's place. That is where um, Max has the most fun. I would say in, in each school day, um, and just just home home for Max. And what was the lead up like to that big audition? You know, he he knows he wants to be in this production. He's trying out. Uh, and and what was what was was it anxiety? Was it nerves? What was it? <laughs> And Max is a pretty confident kid, um, really strong build, um, just just you know, confident overall. When one of when the the student that was cast as Allie Hackup originally um, dropped out, they came to Max. The theater teacher came to Max and said, "You know what, Max? We would like to offer you the role of Allie Hackup." And Max, um, I can tell you right now, Max called me <laughs> from school. They're not supposed to have their phones on them at school. Max called me from the theater teacher's room, and um, I could just hear. The, the excitement um, just bubbling through on the other line. He was so, so excited. And then when did things shift? So Friday, November the 3rd, um, the school called my husband. It was about 2.30 in the afternoon, like right right before school ends. Um, and it was the principal. And he was very brief, um, just said, you know, Mr. Hightower, we have, the district has enacted a new policy and that means that only boys can go out for boy roles and only girls can go out for girl roles. And unfortunately, that means Max has been cut from their role. I, I was not on the phone, but after he got off the phone with the principal, he immediately called me. So I answered it and I could immediately tell um, something was wrong because my husband's voice was was um, breaking. Right. Um, I could hear the emotion. And he the first thing that he said was, Amy. I just want you to know that Max has done nothing wrong. And I said, what is going on? And uh, he proceeded to tell me about this new policy that had been put in place. I asked if Max knew about it yet, and um, he said no. So I immediately reached out to Max. Um, I told him that um, the principal had called us and that his role had been um, revoked and that uh, he was no longer going to be Ali Hackham. Of course, he was very, very, very upset. Um, 
And then right after that, the principal called all the kids in one by one to let them know about the new rule. So it was not a good day. Then the fight begins and council meetings or school board meetings. Um, what did you and your family say, you know, to try to change the board's mind? Yeah. Um, so my husband and my daughter, Gracie, uh, were very brave and got up to speak to the board. Um, my husband really wanted to just address um, there was some some untruths when they did their first release. They told us that um, there was not a policy regarding gender, but that Oklahoma was actually not appropriate for high school students um, because it had, you know, sexual innuendos, profanity, mm-hmm. um, all of that. They said one thing on the phone and yes. then the reasoning change, seemed to change. But the New York Times, I know, says it obtained yes. phone messages that, that states the original reasoning that they, that they gave you. So that, that shift, what did that signal to you? that they were changing the reasoning. You know, up up until that was released, we had a lot of people saying, well, Sherman ISD said they didn't say that. But then once we had proof that that is actually what we were all told along with the students, um, I think that also helped solidify that, you know, there that the ISD was backtracking and that there were some lies in their, um, their news releases. So to hear then, you know, the board goes away, Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no, you know, nobody thinks the decision is going to come quickly, right. but then it does come. What were you thinking before that decision came? How did you think this was going to go? I I was not expecting it at all. Um, I, you know, of course, we live in Texas. We live in a very conservative city. I did not think they were going to come back in and apologize and reverse everything. I, that's the honest truth. And so what does that apology and that reversal mean to you now? Is that enough for you? <laughs> No, it's not enough for me. It, yes, I will consider it a win, um, but it is just one part of this fight because there are some harmful people in position with the school, with the uh, the superintendent being the the number one. But there are also some some board members as well um, that have been made or that has been known that they do not um, agree with that lifestyle. The LGBTQ um, community they don't agree with that and. Um, some of the things that the superintendent that's been come to light that the superintendent did, which was, you know, enact this policy on his own without consulting with the board. I think that that is harmful. And I think that he should be terminated. Has this changed at all how you feel about your community? You know what? It really has, because I was very, very hesitant. I've been very private about Max's um, lifestyle. Um, not that it bothered me in any way, but just because um, it's not safe to broadcast that right in in the area that we're in. So I just did not, I was not public with it at all. And I expected to get some hate whenever I made my post, but oh my gosh, the absolute outpouring of love and support that we have received far outweighs any negative or hateful thing that we have received. It's It's been truly a beautiful thing to witness. And I'm very, very, very proud of our community. Amy, uh, congratulations to you and break a leg, I guess I'll say to Max. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. We reached Amy Hightower in Sherman, Texas.
Last night on the show, we tried something new with the inaugural entry of a segment we called American Politicians Behaving Well. It went great uh, until eight seconds in when it went off the rails. That's when we heard Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullen challenging Teamsters leader Sean O'Brien to a fight during a Senate hearing chaired by Bernie Sanders. If you missed it, here it is again. If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, oh, stop it. <laughs> Is that your solution every problem? <laughs> no, no, sit down. Oh, Eric, sit down. Okay. You know, you're a United States senator. Sit down. Oh, okay. okay. Sit down, please. Okay, so that was not exactly what we had in mind. But a few producers on this show tell me that Senator Mullen appeared on Fox News last night. I assume because he was listening to As It Happens and he heard how he had sabotaged our American Politicians Behaving Well segment, which was supposed to be inspiring. So, again, this is just my educated guess. He probably called into Sean Hannity's show to make things right in a moment of contrite self-reflection. That's got to be it. So let's hear it for the record. I've had media come out to me and says, this isn't coming of a senator. I was like, listen, I'm a guy from Oklahoma first. In Oklahoma, you don't do this. Maybe you run your mouth in New Jersey. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not from New Jersey, but this is some thug. He, he's, he, in 2022, he said he wanted to bring the mob mentality back to the Teamsters. It, maybe that's true, but you still aren't going to run your mouth at me and expect me to just sit there. And, and you, you should have seen the fear of his eyes when I stood up, too. I'm not joking. I, I'm not looking for a fight. I used to get paid to fight professionally. Uh, this, I, I'm not really looking for it, but I'm sure not going to sit back and let somebody do that and not call him out on it. You know, it is right. interesting, though, when you think of the left today, when all of a sudden did, did we become that woke that the thought of two people uh, one responding to a threat directly saying, okay, you threatened me. Here's your opportunity. Take me up on it. Yeah, well, it's political correctness. It's, it's, it's all of a sudden you got to worry about somebody's feelings, but oh, by the way, the left can say whatever they want. And, 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 and we need more of this, to be quite frank. I'm not saying more violence, but we need more people to be taught a lesson and, and be called out on what they say. you got to be responsible hey, Senator, for the words. The way I read his, his tweet to you is he called you out. He's right. the one that said he, he, he wanted this exchange and all you were doing was saying, OK, tough guy, let's go. That's I mean, right. Uh, I think any other response kind of would have been a little gutless. Uh, that, but, it, you know, it, I would agree with that. I mean, what did people want me to do if I didn't do that? People in Oklahoma would be pretty upset at me. That's not how we <laughs> raise. I'm supposed to represent Oklahoma values. You know, I think that actually is probably true. And I think people in Oklahoma, I'm going to predict that your approval ratings are probably going to go higher. Not how I thought that was going to go. For the record, Oklahoma Senator Mark Wayne Mullen speaking to Sean Hannity on Fox News last night. been there. You've ordered something online. You're anxiously awaiting its arrival, tracking it on the website. And then at some point in the brief window between when it's delivered and when you open the front door to get it, there it is gone. Porch piracy is hardly a new phenomenon at this point, but one BC municipality has a new approach to policing it. And the people of New Westminster are hoping it will make all the difference. Sergeant Justine Tom is a member of the New Westminster Police Department. 
Sergeant Tom, what exactly uh, is is your police department doing to try to deter or stop porch pirates? So the the bait package program, if I were to kind of describe it, is it's very similar to uh, like a bait car program or a bait bike bike program. Uh, these bait packages are uh, come in all different shapes and sizes. They're different weights. They could be uh, like a tube or they could be a box. They could be like a bubble envelope. Um, and they are being distributed uh, in different areas within the community. Uh, they uh, are designed to basically indicate to investigators when the when the package basically has legs, so to speak, and that then indicates, um, obviously, that a package is on the move, and um, mm-hmm. investigators will step in. So these are you leave them on porches, just as if it were a normal delivery. Yes, we do leave them uh, on porches. It could be, you know, a, a lobby in an apartment building. Mm-hmm. It could be, uh, you know, a local kind of business in the area. We have had people kind of reach out within the community and express interest in participating in the program. Yeah, yeah to volunteer. Um, our street crime unit themselves, they deal with, you know, a wide variety of things. Uh, and this is just kind of one different you know, crime prevention tool that we use. So when you've uh, been you've been doing this for a while, what happens when the package has legs, as you say, and, and officers intervene? I mean, the whole the whole obviously purpose of the program is that uh, when a package actually moves, like a, a significant difference. So there there definitely can be instances where you have you know that friendly neighbor who just uh, cares about the community and maybe maybe sees that you know one of their neighbors has had a package laying out for a while. If a package moves, um, you know, a short distance and can be accounted for, that's not something we're con- concerned about. But um, if it uh, goes a long distance, our investigators are able to actually locate that package Um, and you 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 know you could be arrested and you would face the consequences of that how much of a problem had this become to trigger this kind of program in the first place it's certainly something people can relate to uh, right across the country and elsewhere Absolutely. It's something that everybody can relate to. Um, It is something that goes on in every community, not just New Westminster, but our uh, members that are working in our department are always looking for ways that they can, you know, have a proactive impact on crime. And this was an initiative that they came up with um, to assist within our community. It is an issue. uh, And obviously, we do get calls about mail theft. And this Mm -hmm. was just one of the crime prevention kind of avenues that we've we've taken. What kind of impact have, have, have you seen this have as you've put this into place? Well, in in looking at the stats thus far, um, in comparing this time last year to uh, this time this year, there has been a thirty percent decrease. Um, it's and it's not necessarily just about uh, you know having the bait packages out there as well. Uh, also comes with it is awareness in the community that this exists. Um, so it's it's not necessarily just you know about uh, the bait package specifically, but also increasing awareness of the program. So yeah. all of that together, um, we have felt made, has made an impact. So making, you know, the homeowners or people receiving packages aware, but also deterring, deterring yeah, the crime Yeah, it's not, it's not necessarily just like mm-hmm. the, you know, the bait packages themselves, but it's definitely, definitely about it being a deterrent. Yeah.
What about the delivery companies themselves? Because uh, certainly I've had this conversation with, with a lot of people or sometimes, you know, uh, I haven't been to have a great Canada Post worker and they of their own accord will put a package in, in a place where it's clearly not right on the doorstep. So if someone came onto the porch, they could see it, but they would have to, to trespass at that point. Other companies, you know, don't take the same amount of care. So why not speak to the delivery companies themselves? to maybe not leave packages in such obvious places? Yeah, I mean, that that's definitely, I mean, I, I can't say that that is something that, uh, I mean, I don't even actually know whether that is something that um, our investigators have actually done in that regard. I mean, that's something that I think that us as a, an agency would be open to doing, you know, when it comes to deliveries within the community. And um, saying that, I also think that it is something that, you know, those companies are aware of. So I definitely think there there's conversations to be had with larger companies, but there are things that, you know, us as homeowners or, you know, people living within a community shopping online um, can do, I think, to make an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, home safety things like ensuring you have proper lighting, uh, ensuring that you don't have obstructions, you know, obstructions to your front door, like making sure there's a, you know, a proper view to the, the front mm-hmm. door. Uh, but even people having, with doorbell cameras, this happens. Yeah. They see it happening on camera, and they can't do anything about it, right? You totally do. Um, but you got to look at the doorbell cameras. I think is uh, also adds that level of. I know even for myself, like when I've ordered something, uh, being able to actually monitor my door camera and know that something's been delivered. Then you, you know, have conversation if you have one with a neighbor or a family member that can actually then swing by and grab the package. So it's it's kind of that twofold thing. But this is something that, yeah, our, our street crime unit really did want to try and see um, if we had some success with it. So full steam ahead for this holiday season for, for this this strategy. Yeah, like, you know, this is the time when, when people are often, you know, ordering a lot online. Uh, another tip would be maybe uh, shopping locally. we got lots of great vendors in all the communities we live, and then you're not, you know, purchasing things necessarily online. But um, we don't want people's holiday seasons ruined. Sergeant Tom, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Justine Tom is a sergeant with the police department of New Westminster. That's where we reached her. a fan of experimental jazz, you might recognize this song as The Tunnel, recorded by British band Azimuth in 1977. You might also recognize it if you're a fan of hip-hop. 
because it's featured on Drake's latest album, specifically on the track IDGAF, which stands for I Don't Give a Fig, I assume. Norma Winstone is the singer and lyricist featured on The Tunnel. We reached her in Deal, England, outside Dover. And Norma, you recorded this song 46 years ago, 1977. Did you know then that you were making something special? No. no well, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, <laughs> it, was, it was special to us, but I didn't really think it was that special to anybody else. Let alone decades later, part of a number yeah. one hip-hop album now. Wow, I know. <laughs> wasn't on your list no, of to-dos? Before the age of 83? No, yeah. no, no. no. <laughs> You're still processing it, it sounds like. Well, I am because today, you see, the Guardian uh, article mm -hmm. just came out. And since then, it's just been people ringing up for interviews, yeah. you know. Um, well, I'm glad we, we yeah. got a, a few minutes uh, with you. And the Guardian article does point out, and we should as well, it's not like you were plucked from obscurity. You've had a great career. But how did... Drake come upon this song or what did they tell you about why you know they wanted to use your song they didn't tell me how he found yeah. it they just said that he loved it huh? and um that that's all I knew really uh, he didn't call you himself uh, right no no mm. no no I guess people like him have people don't they <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess <laughs> but what did what did his team tell you no I got an email yeah. just saying that Drake wants to use a piece of, of yours yeah. um, called The Tunnel. And did you um, know Drake? No, not really. It's terrible, isn't it? I mean, I'd heard the name, but <laughs> I didn't know how big he was <laughs> until uh, I mentioned it to my son. I said, oh, if there's somebody called Drake wants to use some of The Tunnel. And he <laughs> went, what? <laughs> He's a musician. Both of your sons are, we should point out. And he said, what? Yes, and yes. And he just said, what? I mean, he said, he's mega. You, <laughs> you, you know, and that was it, really. And, of course, then I found out that he was. And yeah. uh, they Zoomed me, his people, and played me the track. And um, I, was, I was quite happy in a way because um, he didn't really do anything to it. I mean, he yeah. just knocked off some piano at the beginning and then starts with the synthesizer. And... Um, suddenly cuts as a strange cut to the trumpet but really he didn't yeah. mess around with it didn't do anything uh, you know to as far as i was concerned damage what we'd done <laughs> yeah it's um, we played a little bit of it for our for our listeners before our conversation began we can't mm. play the drake song without a lot of bleeps unfortunately in this case but but what do you think of it well i'm surprised really because I've never really been into rap because I often can't understand the words. Yeah. Mind you, I think sometimes it's best if you can't understand the words. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, of course I listened to this. And he's interesting, I think, in that he uses um, the samples. That There's other things going on while he's rapping, which are quite interesting, you know, in the background, things happening and the music that he's... Mm -hmm. I don't know, perhaps sampled or that he's created. I don't really know. Don't know that much about him. But no, I, I, I was surprised that I, I liked it more than I thought I would, really. 
you know, I, I think a lot of people would see as as your musical styles as as very different. But as you were listening yeah. to Drake's, do you think there are some similarities, maybe even philosophically, with with what you were doing with the tunnel and what he's doing with this song? Well, I don't really know. I think I I've tried to find some. I've tried to think <laughs> for what could there be about experimenting what perhaps. He does. Well, yes. I mean, we we were definitely experimenting because, you know, I don't we'd not really heard anything like that before, and uh, the lineup was unusual. You know, piano and synthesizer and voice and trumpet. Um, I mean, nobody really was doing that, and we were just lucky that we we found a record label, the you know ECM label, with Manfred Eicher who has really big ears, you know, <laughs> wide open, and um, he's really interested in sound. And I think he found the sound of, th- of the three of us together really yeah. interesting. And um, so he just let us do what we wanted. And in that way, I mean, we were doing just what we wanted at that time, um, which I suppose is what Drake does, doesn't he? The way he... <laughs> When you can hear the words, it seems as if he's more or less saying, well, I'm just doing what I want, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, you've been listening closely. Um, you So Drake is a fan now. You have this new international attention. You certainly have our listeners' attention. Are there any other uh, musicians or artists that you that you want to collaborate with now? Um, oh, well, I mean, there have uh, been musicians that I've kind of – heard for forever really that I'd never collaborated with and and would still like to mm-hmm. and but I mean nobody that I I don't think there's anybody really that I don't know personally you don't need Drake's help is what you're saying <laughs> you're doing just fine um well I probably do <laughs> I'd probably need his help financially yes <laughs> but no I mean it's interesting because I, I do different things you know mm-hmm. I'm interested always to keep the brain alive and the voice going you know what i mean absolutely i'm lucky touch wood it's it's still the voice is still okay it sounds i I don't know how (laughs) my age but it seems to be well norma it's been a pleasure speaking with you thank you well thank you it's 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 very heartening to have all this attention (laughs) um enjoy it yes i'll try who knows uh what will happen next? <laughs> yeah. Take care, Norma. <laughs> okay, bye. Norma Winstone is a singer and lyricist featured on the new Drake track, IDGAF. She's in Deal, England. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksell. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.